the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, City of Stars, are you shining just for me? Or are you a landing strip? The collective unconscious of humanity is built to guide in invaders from three dimensions away who will make us into a zombie workforce to stock the intergalactic target. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have a great big round table this time featuring the editors and some of the writers from new anthology Voices of the Fall. The book is edited by John Ringo and Gary Poole, who join us, and it contains stories written by an amazing group of writers, and it's all set in John's Black Tide Rising series milieu. The zombie apocalypse has come, and humanity is reeling, trying to survive, trying to recover. On the roundtable, we have John Ringo and Gary Poole. We have authors Mike Massa, Brendan Dubois, and Robert Butner, who all pen some very different but very cool takes on what happens in John's Black Tide Rising world just after the fall. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now, here's the news. The wind doth blow and the snow doth fall in some quarters, and verily a springtime of the imagination is nigh, with the all-new Bain March Mass Market paperbacks. First out now is 1636, The Vatican Sanction, by Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon. Pope Urban is on the run from the Vatican's would-be usurper Borgia. Fortunately, Urban has help from those indomitable modern West Virginians thrown back in time during the Ring of Fire cataclysm. Also out in mass market at booksellers is Cobra Trader by Timothy Zahn. The Cobras face an impossible decision. Join with the hated dominion of man, or risk annihilation at the hands of the implacable alien Troft in the conclusion of the Cobra War trilogy. And finally, now out is Mission to Methany by Les Johnson. Turns out humanity is far from alone in the galaxy, and our future may depend on one man discovering a strange secret on the tiny egg-shaped moon, Methany. The only question is... Will he get there in time? Mission to Methany by Les Johnson, Cobra Trader by Timothy Zahn, and 1636 The Vatican Sanction by Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon are now available in mass market paperback editions at booksellers everywhere. And hey, the publication of the mass market edition also means the ebook prices have gone down. So what are you waiting for? Check them out. I want to welcome John Ringo, Gary Poole, Mike Massa. We have Brendan Dubois is here. We have Robert Butner here. And um, is that it? No, we also, yeah, I got Gary already. Okay. And we are going to talk about uh, this, this great new uh, anthology story collection that's centered around John Ringo's Black Tide Rising universe. It's called Voices of the Fall. 
Um, let me just, uh, before we get started, let me introduce a few people so that we can uh, we can know who is talking. And I'll just ask you to to say hello so we can maybe put a voice to the to the name. John Ringo is the creator of the Pauline War series, which is a New York Times bestselling series with over one million copies in print. In addition, he's penned the Council of War series, um, the national best-selling techno-thriller novels about Mike Harmon, the Ghost series, the, the, the Kildar um, books. He is, has co-written many books with different authors, including David Weber, um, the, uh, the March Up Country, March to the Sea, the Prince, uh, Prince Robert books. I, I guess we call them the Empire of Man books. Um, and lots of others. Um, but lately he's been concentrating on his, uh, oh, and, and also with Larry Correa, the uh, Monster Hunter um, memoir series. Uh, lately he's been concentrating on his science-based zombie apocalypse Black Tide Rising series. And and this anthology is set within that. So we, John has gotten, um, and, and Gary, who is the co-editor on it, has... Um, has gotten these amazing writers to uh, to take part in this universe he's created. Um, the series itself, uh, the novels are Under a Graveyard Sky, To Sail a Darkling Sea, Islands of Rage and Hope, and Strands of Sorrow. And the first Black Tide Rising series anthology was called Black Tide Rising, I think. Yes, it was. So um, that's John. Uh, the other editor on this anthology is Gary Poole. He has worked in the entertainment and publishing industry for his entire adult life. He's worked directly with John Ringo and several other authors on over a dozen novels and anthologies. He's also a film and television screenwriter, the managing editor of a successful alternative news weekly in Tennessee, co-host a popular radio morning show, and has voiced well over 3,000 radio and television commercials. That's Gary Poole. Hi, Gary. And um, hello. And that is his voice. Um Mike Massa has lived a diverse and adventurous life, including stints as a Navy SEAL officer, international investment banker, and internet technologist. His greatest adventures have been in marriage and parenthood, however. Uh, Mike is a university cybersecurity researcher consulted by governments and Fortune 500 countries, companies and um, high net worth families on issues of privacy, resilience, and disaster recovery. He's put a lot of this background knowledge to use in the two books that he's co-written with John Ringo. The first of those was uh, Valley of the Shadows, which is, the, and these are also Black Tide Rising books. They are about, um, about, is it Mike, what's the name of the main character of the Black Tide Rising? Is it Mike Smith? Tom Smith. So uh, Tom, Tom is the brother, right? Tom Smith is brother to Steve Smith and uncle to Faith Smith, uh, both characters well-known and beloved by John's right, right, right. audience. Okay, Steve Smith is the main Black Tide Rising, uh, the guy that's putting together the, the flotilla nation. And his brother now is who is being chronicled in Valley of the Shadows and River of Night, which is coming out in July. And um, we've... Just been working on the maps for that, haven't we, Mike? <laughs> Getting ready, on, yeah. Ongoing. Yeah, those would be really cool. Uh, Brendan Dubois is, lives in New Hampshire. He is the award-winning author of 21 novels and more than 160 short stories. His second science fiction novel, Red Vengeance, was published. Well, his third is out, uh, Black Triumph, um, out from Bain. 
he's he has the black that black triumph series of alien invasion uh humans fighting in the resistance uh that that we've been putting out it's really cool um lately he's been working on a series of uh, with um james patterson co-writing with james patterson his stories uh brenda's really well known as a short story writer great short story writer stories have appeared in playboy analog asimovs etc ellery queen he's twice won the seamus award uh, from the Private Eye Writers of America, and um, I think you've been up for the uh, for the old, um, it's the Edgar, right? Yes, <laughs> Brendan's been up for the Edgar a couple of times as well as a finalist. All on one yeah. note about Brendan, his story yeah. the anthology, The Down Easters, is, was what the cover hey, of Daniel, the anthology is based on. Right. Nationally best-selling author Robert Butner has a... The Quail Award nominee for Best New Writer of 2005, his debut, his debut novel, Orphanage, um, was a national bestseller. Lately, he's been writing thrillers. The Golden Gate is set in the near present, and he's we've got a really cool novel by Bob coming out, uh, Robert Butner, in June. we got a really cool novel by uh, Robert Butner coming out in June, and that is called... Uh, my Enemy's Enemy, which is a, a wonderful historical, uh, it's a crazy historical novel about the possible Nazi bomb uh, being developed and possibly being used on, on America in the present day. Cool techno thriller. Well, let's, um, so Gary, before we uh, began the podcast, you were talking about a big, uh, a big um, panel that was at LibertyCon last year with some of the writers. Um, what's the story of that, and what does that have to do with Mike Massa? Well, a few years ago, when the first anthology came out, Black Tide Rising, uh, we had a big roundtable panel at Liberty Con, about three years ago, and we had almost all the writers up on stage, which was a lot of fun. Um, it was a great, uh, great anthology, great success, and Mike Massa, and I believe, Mike, was this not your first professional sale? It was uh, on the... On the back of uh, how well John and you received the short that I was invited to contribute to the original anthology, Black Tide Rising, um, there was discussion and subsequently presented during the act, to my surprise, mind you, I didn't know this was coming, and uh, presented during the actual panel itself, uh, Tony Weisskopf, a publisher, um, delivered for my signature the, uh, <laughs> the paper contract to co-write John with John. Uh, what became two novels set in John's Black Tide Rising universe, Under Graveyard Sky being the first book. So, But I hate to break this to you, Mike. Don't expect a book contract every time you show up on a panel at Liberty Con, okay? That's established. That's how it goes from this point forward. Yeah. Uh, well, it may be every other one. It was a, it was a wonderful surprise and really... Uh, a tremendous thrill. So I was really excited to do it. And of course, you know, the various folks in the panel, uh, John yourself included, were hamming it up for uh, for my benefit, which made it all the more memorable. That's really cool. And that and the first of those is out. So is how did John and Gary? How did you decide that you wanted to do an anthology of these stories? Um, what and and John, what? How the hell did you come up? How did you come up with the, the, the idea of the of Black Tide Rising? Well, the, the first anthology was kind of a no-brainer. Um, the, the books had been received very well, and there had been another number of authors who had discussed possibly writing in the universe. 
because the universe essentially follows one particular track. You know, in 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 any world, in this world, everybody has their own story. You know, their own life. You know, uh, Mike Massa. You know, he he went off to to be Navy Special Warfare. You know, um, uh, Kelly was. You know, he was a red leg. I was a paratrooper. You know, each of us have our own lives, and, and each of those lives is a story in and of itself. So the original four books followed the story of uh, the the four, the family of four. You know, it's the zombie Swiss family Robinson is essentially the four books, which is this family that takes off to sea and, and eventually starts to rebuild civilization. Um, another way to put it is that uh, uh, Battlestar Galactica in the Atlantic Ocean during a zombie apocalypse. Um, <laughs> but uh, there were a lot of stories that got left behind because the reality is that they dealt with a lot of people along the way as they were you know, headed off into the distance, and those people kind of got left behind. So it was like, well, what are their stories? You know, what happened to all of these other people, and what else is going on in the world? So... Uh, Gary and I were talking, and it was like, you know, maybe we should do an anthology. So we discussed that with Tony Weisskopf, who's the publisher of Paint Book. And Tony was like, yeah, you know, an anthology would, sounds good. And we got all of these just amazing stories. Um, Mike Massa's uh, Battle of the Birds. Uh, I asked him to do that story because he had the knowledge base to be able to do it. Uh, to be honest, what I was expecting was something that wasn't particularly useful, um, but I was just going to, in the background, without putting my name on it, fix it all up so it was usable in the story. You know, he had the knowledge, but, you know, hey, I have to fix the writing. What we actually got was just this amazing short story that it was like, well, um, you got a contraction wrong. That was pretty much the only <laughs> thing we had to fix. <laughs> um, and it was, you know, if, if awards were different in this day and age, it would have been something that got a, got a big award because it was just an amazing story. Um, uh, so anyway, we, I mean, there were all these great stories in it. In the first one, which was the anthology is called Black Tide Rising. And from the point of view of sales and anthology, uh, the sales were really good. Um, and it cool. came out in hardcover. It came out in hardcover, which it was like the first hardcover anthology Bain had ever done. The sales were fantastic. So it was, well, let's do another anthology. Um, what do we base that anthology on? In, I believe it's the second, it was either the second or the third book uh, as chapter heading. Um, yeah, it was the second book, uh, uh, The Sale of Darkling Sea. Um, as chapter heading, I had... Uh, collected radio transmissions of the fall, which was uh, people who had somehow gotten a hold of a ham radio or some other communication device and were sending out radio calls saying, you know, what was going on with them or asking for help or saying you can you can assemble here at safe. So, um, and that's actually called the Voices of the Fall. And that was ostensibly a book of transcripts of these that was collected by the University of the South, which is near here. And uh, so the idea for the second anthology was what are the stories behind those? 
And not all of the not all of the stories that we got actually followed those particular transcripts. Uh, transmissions, but we got, again, just a whole slew of amazing stories. Um, and all the stories uh, have a thematic link, and they're all about communication um, and how these different surviving groups communicate, some for good and some for not so good. There's also, um, Gary, you mentioned in your introduction, you mentioned that there's sort of a common theme of, of people working together even uh, in in trying circumstances as well, um, even though of course there's a, there's some perfidity and, and badness in, in here as well. We've got some villains. Yeah, you do, but it's this it's kind of the story of mankind as a species. In in a zombie apocalypse, you wouldn't survive by yourself in a cave. You would need to survive as a group, as a community. And that's kind of, to me, that's the overarching theme of the entire Black Tide series with the novels, the anthologies, is how people have come together to not just survive, but to kind of take it to the next level, the next step. And I, I like that theme running through. What I like most about Black Tide, a novel series, is that at its core, it's actually very hopeful. That is true. They rebuild, they, I mean, it's uh, it's it's a possible um, and believable way that humans might uh, rebuild themselves, uh, rebuild civilization that John came up with. So, John, tell us about Starry Starry Night, um, the first story in the anthology, and uh, it's it's kind of like how, how legends are born kind of story, right? It's being retold by an old lady who was a child during the, uh, during the, the apocalypse. Um, about the guy that created the community that survived in the Minneapolis area. And he's telling it from the point of view of he's this tall Bunyan sort of figure. You know, he's a giant of a man. He's, you know, he's, he's the hero of everything. But then you see it from his perspective, and he's actually one of these guys who had, he'd never succeeded at anything in his life. He never really tried to succeed at anything in his life. He was a... Um, you know, he was kind of a day laborer doing minor work throughout his whole life. He's this old guy who is like a greeter at Walmart and when the apocalypse starts. And so the Walmart manager lets him take some food home, and he locks himself in an apartment until the snows come. And he barely survives till then, but then once the snows come, the zombies start falling back. But he starts finding people that, um, you know, he's always had to kind of survive hand-to-mouth. Um and so in this disaster, he's kind of mentally prepared for it. He's never had much in his life. So the fact that there's not much is not that big of a deal. As a matter of fact, at one point, he's like, he'd, he'd been scrounging in an apartment, you know, kind of finding stuff. And he's like, wow, I've got more food, more booze, and more jewelry than I've ever seen in my life. You know, he, he's a success in this apocalypse. But he starts finding people that, aren't used to surviving and gathering them together and, and sort of keeping them alive. Um, and, uh, and so uh, he becomes this, uh, he, anyway, he eventually disappears. I won't get into what the ending of the book is, but he eventually disappears and he becomes this uh, mythical figure. You know, and he had 
he'd never been anybody before that, and now he's the Paul Bunyan myth of the of the apostle. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, it's and, the, I mean, it's do you the, think a lot of uh, do you think a lot of uh, tall tales and, and tall myths, tales uh, and, are and born myths, in this way? Uh, are born in this way? Um, there are a lot of them. I mean, if you really go back in, in mythology, um, there are people. I have fortunately, since I, especially since becoming an author, but even before that. Um, I have throughout my life met a lot of people who are, um, uh, they are real mythical figures. They are legends in their own time, if you will. Um, they're people who are just so extraordinary that they are way down the end of the bell curve. And I've fortunately been able to meet a lot of these people. Um, back in, you know, if you go back to the Paleolithic, you have the guy that, you know, always wins every battle. You have the guy that can track any animal and, and find them. And, and there are these people who are just really, you know, you have the, the woman who can heal anyone. And you have these people who are just, they are individually very extraordinary. And so from those stories that are told about them, they become legendary figures. And that, that is one argument for where you get the, the stories of the gods. Like Orion, the Orion myth, it's found in practically every traditional culture. And for every traditional culture that, uh, that can see the constellation Orion designates that as a great hunter. And it, it, found, uh, it was found in Native American myths. It was found in European myths, found in Mesopotamian myths. Um, and they all point to the same... They all point to the same constellation. So that was somebody who very early in human evolution, or very early in human prehistory, must have done something that made them extraordinary. And what's really funny is, is that the, the, the phoneme for it, for the world, and even with, uh, they point to a different constellation, but the uh, um, Australian Aborigines who were cut off for 40,000 years um, identify a great hunt, hunter, and the name is very, very similar to Orion. So you have you have these myths, these you know, uh, Joseph Campbell's uh, the Hero of a Thousand Faces. You have these myths which are spread across multiple cultures, and frequently they even have similar phonemes. So it probably was somebody who was truly extraordinary in one particular tribe, and the story just spread. Here's the other question. Is Bjorn Kludner going to get his own constellation? The main character What's of Story Night. He deserves his own constellation. Oh, yeah. does he get his own constellation? No, I, you know, uh, he's too far forward in history. You know, there would be the, the, Einstein, the, the Einstein constellation, the, the Hawking constellation, the uh, Neil Armstrong, uh, you have a constellation, you know, that sort of thing. All right, so we're not going to replace Orion with with Bjorn. <laughs> it's a humorous story, obviously, or, that you've told for the for the for your opening story. You're talking about Starry Starry Night. Yes, yeah. Starry mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Night was not particularly humorous. It wasn't, from my perspective. Uh, well, in that we are seeing what Bjorn really is and what the future perception of him is. I didn't do that really as humor. I did that as as more uh, so that the reader could 
to get a perception of not all myths are based on on truth, if you will. <clears throat> so her right. truth is that he was a giant. Uh, the the true truth is that he was a guy who just happened to have had such a rough life that he was pretty good at surviving. Um, you know, that was the big thing about him, was that his whole life had been rough, so dropping into an apocalypse is not that much rougher. rougher. There's a... Uh, um, uh, the guy who wrote Swan Song, um, as a matter of fact, it might have been Swan Song, um, and I, I can't remember the name of the author, but uh, he has an, an apocalypse story. I think it was a nuclear war. And there's this lady in there who's a street person. And, and she's a street person because her daughter had died and she kind of went nuts. And she carries everything in a great big purse. She, she carries everything she's got in a great big purse. And she's able to basically survive where everybody else can't because she's just been surviving um, her whole life. And that's kind of what this guy's like. You know, he's survived his whole life. He's, 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 he's used to privation. So he is able to thrive in privation and provide in, you know, in deprived situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're talking about Robert McCammon. Yeah, that's it. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's from Alabama. I knew him uh, when I was in college, <laughs> actually. Yeah, I used, to, I used to read a lot of his books. Really good horror writer. Uh, started out as a reporter for the Birmingham News back in the day. Anyway. Swan Song won the Bram Stoker. I mean, it was a really good novel. Yeah, yeah based on completely bogus science, but it was a really good novel. Well, Black Tide Rising has a lot of cool science in it that provided um, by John's... Uh, Research and by uh, Dr. Uh, Rob Hampson, who's an excellent uh, resource that many Bain authors draw on for, for a little biological knowledge. Um, Rob Hampson. Um, maybe we could talk about uh, Mike's story, Spectrum, which is, is similar in ways to John's story in that the main character is, um, is not particularly heroic when we first meet him, right? Um, he's sort of a Forrest Gump in a way. He's not the, your uh, your average um, John Ringo, Mike Massa, heroic character, dual wielding uh, belted SMGs and mowing down uh, infected and terrorists with the abandon. Uh, he's he's uh, a person who had gotten sick. He woke up because a very small proportion of the uh, the victims of the H7D3 flu. Uh, succumb to the flu, and then their immune system somehow beats it, and they wake up weakened, but they haven't turned into the traditional infected zombie. They just pull through. A very small proportion do that, and he, luck of the draw, uh, did that. And when he was sick and abandoned, he was working what I'll characterize as a very inauthentic uh, sideshow sort of – what you would characterize as a, a, a living uh, museum or exhibit where you go to see how, you know, and pick the ancestry of your choice uh, lives. And in this case, it was one of the ways that a, a sideshow in the Midwest made money in partnership with um, uh, an American Indian tribe. And he was 
not welcome in either place because he was frankly um, not, let's say, as intellectually a giant as your average person. And so what he was good at are these really basic fundamental tasks according to a rote schedule and a set formula and a very firm set of rules. And so the story begins when he uh, has been you know, waking up now all by himself and there's no one else to tell him what to do, so all he knows to do is to follow the set of rules that are set for how he contributes in this sort of living history museum. And he's all by himself. I found this uh, I found this story particularly fascinating when you turned it in, Mike, and I made the first read. First of all, I like the title because it relates to the protagonist who is obviously somewhere on the autistic spectrum. Yep. But also the word spectrum and the all other meanings of it. What I liked about this story is that you know you deal with also beta zombies, which we have been referenced in uh, other novels. But I like how uniquely adaptive he was to this environment, and it was just it was a very interesting take on an uncommon protagonist that I thought was told very well. It's one of my favorite stories. Um, I'm, I'm really glad you liked it. It was a it was a different sort of thing to write, um, and I'm uh, you know at risk of um, you know because I'm I, <laughs> I've been a uh, I asked for uh, some members of my family and some members of uh, of John's readership that I identify have have reached out to me and identified as as uh, being well acquainted with or on the spectrum themselves. I asked them to share with me some of their experiences as I was working on the story, um, so that I could try and most accurately represent it as far as I could. Uh, and uh, a few of them were first readers for the story. And they thought that I uh, had done the topic uh, sufficiently justice that they were able to enjoy it, and nothing really jarred them out of, of their uh, out of their reading. One of the things that I didn't want to make it was there's a uh, I don't think we can reference other movie titles, but there's a very um, a contemporary movie about a person on the spectrum who's a super high functioning, almost super genius in some ways, and and not so much other in others. He's sort of facially emotionally blind, and he's a uh, He's an accountant by trade, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more. And that kind of trope, you know, the super, the superhero who's on the spectrum is almost uh, is way overused. Can a person who's not that superhero, can they, survive the, can they survive this apocalypse? And I thought it was an interesting idea to explore. Um, and I've actually volunteered at a couple of living history museums in the American Southwest when I was a, a teenager trying to make money or trying to get references and so the, uh, his boss, this, this protagonist boss, plays a role in the story, and I had a boss just like that, so I really enjoy what happens to the boss. <laughs> uh-huh. You always wanted to do that to him in fiction, you finally get the chance. His payback is a bitch. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just find it very interesting that this is one of the very few stories I've ever read that has a main character on the spectrum who is not presented as a, you know, a super uh, savant of something like that, but presented as just a real person and presented well and without any judgment from, um, you know, whoever's creating the character. I think this is a story that is going to probably connect with a lot of readers that have never seen this type of character, whom we all know someone like this, presented in a very accepting and quite honestly positive light. 
Yeah. What uh, the other interesting part of the story is that we're in uh, is it Enoch? We're in his perspective. We're in his viewpoint really deep the whole time, and we have to kind of figure out what's going on. It's a puzzle story in a way because we only know what he knows. And when when some people start showing up, he he doesn't really understand everything that's happened, right? Right. No, he doesn't. He doesn't know that there's a zombie plague. He's he just figures that they've been closed for a long time, and he better stick to the schedule, otherwise he's going to get in some trouble. <laughs> and and of course, yeah. what do zombies wear? Well, they don't wear a lot of clothes. And he's been giving very strict instructions on how to interact with, with park guests and not stare and so forth. So when the first um, beta shows up and is a relatively young female, this poses a real problem for him. Because you can't, not supposed to be staring at, at the guests, let alone if they're in there all together. Yeah, the all together, that, that's what he calls it, right? Yeah. In the very first anthology that really uh, I thought was a fascinating topic was in the very last story where his his survivors are discussing, well, what do we do about, about the betas? Are the betas human? How, what's our responsibility there? And I think it was really clear in, his, in John's short that they are emphatically human and that the other humans have a responsibility to treat them as such. And it's not really something we've seen um, discussed a whole lot, a little bit, sort of hinted at in the novels. Um, and I wanted to explore that a bit more, so that was as part of why I wrote the story. The... Uh... The basic situation with the, the plague is that it creates a creates insanity, and in general, it creates a it reduces IQ, increases hostility, and does a couple other things that basically makes for an insane, violent human. But in some cases, it uh, it drops the IQ, but it does not cause the uh, the, the violent reaction. Um, and those are the betas. The alphas are the, the regular sort of screaming 28 days later zombies. Um, and the, the betas are, are just uh, basically moronic humans. And, and there are uh, about 5% of the total infected are betas. And a lot of them figure out one way or another to survive, including surviving the alphas, who are much more violent and much more aggressive. Um, and so as things start to stabilize, the question comes up, well, we're finding these, these human beings who can no longer take care of themselves. Um, and, you know, we're kind of, work, we're kind of living hand-to-mouth ourselves, but what do we do about these people who can't take care of themselves? Uh, is one of the one of the big questions of that universe by the end of the fourth book. Anyway, that's about the beta. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, it, it, there's a lot of moral dilemmas that that must be faced in such in this uh, in this world you you've made. Um, let me move on to Brendan. Um, and Brendan, what it actually took um, John's thesis of. Uh, of the uh, recovered radio messages to start his story with. Uh, well, let's talk about the Down Easters. Um, as Gary mentioned, um, there is uh, this great boat on the cover that, uh, that that's referenced from the story. And also you start the story with, um, yeah, you also start the story with a radio transmission. 
maybe take it from there. And, and you're the, you're the Yankee of this group, so you tell a Yankee story. <laughs> what? I'll tell a Yankee story. Sure. Uh, I live near the seacoast of New Hampshire, or as we say up here, New Hampshire. And it's the Gulf of Maine, and I'm familiar with the Maine seacoast. And there are a lot of islands up there that have isolated fishing villages that are sort of cut off from normal life on a day-to-day basis. And I thought my story would just take that to one step forward in John Ringo's universe. How would they survive with uh, you know, the collapse of civilization around them? And the fun part I had with this story was taking you know, a small town, uh, main community, lobstermen, fishermen, isolated. How do they defend themselves? Uh, the mainland is considered sort of forbidden territory, terra incognita. But as the story opens up, the town's only generator is starting to have problems, which means they have to send a small expedition over to the mainland to get supplies. And it's a very terrifying situation because they've seen uh, through binoculars and telescopes what's going on with the mainland with, you know, violence, the buildings burning down, the cars running into each other, and they've even sunken boats that have come to their island seeking refuge. So it's sort of a community on the edge, and uh, I hate to say it, but I had a blast writing it. One one of the challenges of putting an anthology together from an editor is trying to figure out what to put on the cover. And we've been working with Kurt Miller, who's a fantastic cover artist for all of the Black Tide books. And this one was more of a challenge because we needed a strong visual element. And I kept coming back to the Down Easters because I, I just, this vision popped in my head of the two characters on the dock with the zombies approaching and the boat behind them, not knowing if the boat is going to stay or leave. And Kurt took that and I thought came up with a very striking cover. I don't think the characters in the story quite look that hot. I don't know. I'm moving to I'm moving to Maine if if all the <laughs> As the author of that particular story, I named that lobster boat after my wife, whose name is Mona Marie Panette. And let me tell you, we both got a kick out of seeing the cover and her name on the boat. <laughs> I said, Honey, You've reached your live stream. Your name is now on a book cover. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And Kurt had specifically asked if the boat was named for a reason, and I said yes. I didn't know what the reason was, but I knew that you had a reason for that name. Well, yes, and she has gotten such a charge out of it. So I've not yet received my author's copies, hint, hint, Tony, but I'm looking forward to having it in my hand (laughs) so she can look at it quickly. They're on the way. I think Grace was putting them together even as uh, today. And I was just so excited to be invited to be part of this anthology. Um, and I just welcomed the chance instantly, grabbed it with both hands, and I had so much fun writing it. Thank you. Yeah. Well, one of the interesting parts of the story to me is that you, um, like in Mike Williamson's story, for instance, we, we have a, an incipient, uh, we, we have a guy that wants to be king, and he, I mean, he actually achieves it. Um, and we have a lot of uh, sort of authoritarian presences that are sometimes necessary in such situations. Um, you have sort of adopted the, the town council approach of New England to, uh, to a zombie apocalypse, um, science-based zombie apocalypse. Sure. In New England, we've had the, the, the what we call selectmen and town meeting form of government since the early 1600s. 
and we've had that through you know, revolutionary times, the war times, Great Depression. What the heck? We still have it, I would hope, in a zombie apocalypse. So I would say a small, isolated community, you know, being tough New Englanders, they just try to shrug it off and just keep on living life and, and managing it the best way they can. And that, that's what happens in the book. When they have the crisis of the power generator, you know, running out, they have a town meeting to discuss, all right, who are the volunteers who are going over across the straits to the mainland and get the necessary parts? You know, it, it's science fiction zombie, but it's also um, old-time New England small-town former government, which was, again, fun to write. Uh, there was a story that I read. Um, it was a, it was a uh, not so much a story, but it was about the early settlers in New England, um, going back to, like, the Newfoundland days and how they would have to, uh, when they would bring their dories in, because they were mostly fishermen, and they would go out in dories off the beach. And when they bring their dories in, they would have to feed, fight off these giant sea monsters, these, these huge, horrible, ugly things with giant claws that would try to, that would try to attack them as they would get, as, as we were getting up on the beach. Um, the lobsters back in that day were like four and a half, five feet long. Um, these guys were terrified of these gigantic lobsters that they had to deal with. Um, so yeah, you know, you can kind of see the descendants of those going, yeah, well, you know, if our great, 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 great something grandfathers could deal with the giant lobsters, I I think we can probably deal with the zombies, eh? They absolutely would, yeah, I agree. The other thing that you have in here is another dang Belgian Malinois, Brendan. Um, what is your fascination with that dog species? <laughs> okay. Well, uh, a Belgian like a Malinois named Cairo was in on the Osama bin Laden raid, helping the, the SEALs do their thing. And in my Dark Victory trilogy, which you guys uh, published, a Belgian Malinois named Thor uh, plays an important role in tracking down alien invaders. So let's just say... You know I own a Springer Spaniel. Uh, I, I do have a soft spot for the Belgian Malinois. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever seen? Have you guys ever seen Person of Interest? Yep. Uh, it was a, a no, TV a show, and yeah, uh, it had uh, it had a Belgian Malinois uh, was was in it, and at one point, one of the one of the characters is. Uh, um, and the Belgian Malinois was named Bear. And Person of Interest is about uh, it's about a basically an AI that runs a guy that uh, rescues people from being murdered. Um, and at one point, another character says, that, "You know, you want you want me to come live in the Bat Cave with your poorly socialized guard dog and Bear." Um, <laughs> but Bear, <laughs> the, the dog, was yeah. <laughs> Um, Bear was a great character, um, and if you have never seen Person of Interest, it is definitely worth it. The first three seasons certainly are excellent, um, mm-hmm. and Bear was a wonderful character um, because he was just uh, he, he, that that particular breed is one of the most fascinating breeds to me as well. So I haven't particularly used it in books because I try to get away from using pets because I always forget about them. Um, but uh, but that's a that's a very fascinating breed to me as well. Yeah. 
Well, it's getting for Brendan. It's getting to be like a, a a bomb builder putting in a little braid of wire or something into his body. You, you always see a Belgian Malinois in his stories these days. It seems like. Well, thank you, thank you. As an identifier. Uh, well, let's talk. Let's talk to uh, Robert Butner. Um, now, your story is completely on the other side of the world. Um, it it's set in Tibet, and it has to do with CIA. Um, folk uh, totally different take on this um, it also is about communication or miscommunication and at least that's how it begins um, tell us about the species as big as the Ritz well a species as big as the Ritz tells the story of uh, Peter Condon he's a U.S. Army vet and before the fall he has left the military to take a position as an assistant cultural attache in the U.S. Embassy in Kathmandu. And uh, after the fall, he receives a cryptic note from his boss, who is the cultural attache, who Peter's presumed is, is dead. And the note sets Peter off on a journey where he takes him to a Buddhist monastery uh, in the place that uh, the Chinese would prefer. We call the Tibetan Autonomous Region of China. Um, and what some of the rest of us would call a subjugated uh, uh, land that they're trying to exterminate all the Tibetans from. Uh, but anyway, the Himalayas are among the regions that are the last affected by H7D3, and somebody can correct me if I've, if I've misread that, but my understanding was that because of their isolation and the frigid climate there, uh, they didn't, uh, in fact, in this case, the monks don't even know that it happened. Uh, you know, they're, they're uh, one of the last outliers, uh, at least when the story begins. And the, uh, the title of the story, the species title, uh, Species as Big as the Ritz, uh, derives from a 100-year-old a uh, short story by, or actually novella by Scott Fitzgerald called uh, The Diamond as Big as the Ritz. And that story mm -hmm. is sure. about a man who discovers that inside a mountain on his remote, worthless land is a diamond that is literally as big as the Ritz Hotel. And he believes that he can use that to change the world in a positive way. Uh, but then, as happens in stories, Often shit happens and uh, and it ends badly, uh, and that's kind of what happens to uh, uh, what happens in the species as big as the Ritz as well. And really, at its heart, it's a story about balancing love and duty. Uh, it incidentally looks at how nanotechnology could change the way that we make war, uh, to the extent that it hasn't already, um, and. Uh, that's kind of that's kind of what it's about. You have a uh, uh, like Mike. Um, you have a survivor who has um, one of the one of the five percent that makes it through a, a zombie bite. Um, but he has been left changed. Um, he's been pretty crazed, right? Or or something's happened to him. Yeah, he's 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 uh, he's been changed, and uh, but it's it's he was a brilliant biochemist. Princeton graduate, uh, winds up in the CIA and uh, should have been probably 
working on uh, countermeasures uh, against um, the kinds of laptop viruses that uh, that I guess it's presumed uh, turned into uh, the A73 virus, and he. Uh, he does, in fact, but what he wants to do is he wants to be James Bond, and, and, and the company, the, the CIA, lets him do that because it, it was basically a, a white old boys club for a long time, probably still is. And uh, so, but uh, he is, in fact, affected. He is one of the 5%, but what he suffers is a total personality change, and that surprises his uh, his subordinate Peter Condon when he when he encounters him again, and it only dawns on him gradually that this guy is not he's not merely warmer and fuzzier than he used to be, but he's he's crazy and he's crazy in a in a, in a bad way, and uh, in that regard, it's it's a little bit. Uh, it, it harkens a little bit back to uh, to, to, to uh, Conrad's Heart of Darkness uh, that he's been changed by uh, by his isolation and by what he's seen and what he's experienced, and uh, so it's that it, it's that kind of a story too. And uh, I again, like uh, uh, like Brendan said, I mean this was. This is a really interesting and exciting thing to be a part of and to, to venture into a, a, a universe that I had really no experience with at all. Really enjoyed writing it and want to, again, uh, thank everybody for the opportunity to have written it. So, when John and I were approached... Oh, sorry, John. When John and I were approached for the first anthology and in the second one, we, we sat down at his house and we just kind of made a wish list of writers that we would want to invite. Who do we think would have a good time telling stories? And, and the sheer fact is pretty much everybody we thought of, we went, yeah, they probably like writing in this. And everybody that we've reached out to for both anthologies have had the reaction like Bob had. It's like, oh, this is just fun. I like writing in this universe. Well, the nice thing so this about this my... universe is that it gives two things. One, it gives you this world, you know, Terra, all right? And it gives you sort of the the remnant trap of different cultures throughout this world um, and subcultures uh, such as the, the, the Down Easters, the, the, the coastal Maine culture. Um, but then it, 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 it also gives you the fabula rasa because – Pretty much everything has been wiped clean, um, and mm-hmm. at that point, you do whatever you want uh, within the, the constraints of the universe. Um, and a lot of people are very constrained about their universes. Uh, you know, um, I wrote with Larry Korea, and uh, Larry is uh, well. Let's let's talk about George Lucas for a moment instead. Um, you know, when it comes to writing in the Star Wars universe, you write to a very, very specific, this is, you know, here are the parameters, and you can't go outside those lines at all. Um, I am, first of all, I am just not anal retentive enough to keep up with that sort of thing. 
Um, <laughs> I just am not. And the other is that I'm kind of a, I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm, I'm not a libertarian as in big L libertarian, but I, I am a libertarian when it comes to writing. It, it's kind of, you know, if it doesn't completely destroy the universe and it's, it's a little bit off, um, it's a big complicated world out there. And because it, you know, it, it doesn't fit what one particular set of characters knows, there's not much communication. So, you know, maybe your characters are right. So it's just write a good story, have good characters, have a good story, and go have fun in the universe. And people have really loved it. Um, you know, uh, I've gotten a lot of, you know, solid feedback from the writers that have, you know, been in the universe, you know, written in the universe. It's like, it's fun writing in this universe. First of all, it's easy working with Gary. It's easy working with me um, when you can get me to work at all. Um, <laughs> but, uh, oh, not say the word there, John. <laughs> uh, well, you know, one of the benefits of being lazy is that, you know, people learn. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> you know, one of the things they learn is don't try to get a hold of John to ask him a question. So you, you, you're not going to. Um, <laughs> you ask Gary. But, uh, uh, you can ask Gary. And, you know, if it violates the universe, oh, well, we'll figure out a way. I mean, you know, people are like, ooh, it's got to fit specifically within this universe. Nah, man. It's fiction, for God's sake. He makes this shit up. You can change it. All right? <laughs> So, if it's a good story, I don't care. Um, you know, what I want to see is good characters doing interesting shit. Um, I, can I say that? Yeah, I can say that. This is a podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, well, there's a, there's you know, a so big I, reveal I, in Bob's story that I'm not going to give away by the anthology, and you'll find it out. But uh, uh, Bob and I went back and forth on that. It was like, because it was just such a great part of the story, but was it canon with the air quotes uh, why not <laughs> well we don't the species may not be human that we're uh, that's as big as the reds it, it can be canon because it's in Fritz Tibet in a zombie apocalypse okay exactly. nobody in America is going to find out about it alright nobody outside of Tibet is ever going to find out about it because it's, it's in a freaking zombie apocalypse Nobody's going back to Tibet from Europe or from America or even, for that matter, from Southeast Asia, China, Australia, Africa. Nobody's getting to Tibet for 100, 200, 300 years. It's just not going to happen. It's going to take that long just to get back to the point where people are traveling around the world on the ocean, much less getting to freaking Tibet. It's just, you know... Tibet was what Shangri-La was based on because he, for for hundreds, thousands of years, it was nearly impossible to get there. Um, so anyway. I would like to talk it, about a couple quick points on the, some of the stories that we didn't get a chance to talk about. Uh, one of the interesting things, Sarah Hoyt, who we all know and love, um, is Portuguese and has never written a story set in Portugal until this anthology. Yeah. We thought that was very interesting for Sarah storming the Tower of Babel. Uh, and she had an absolute ball because she had never written in her home, you know, a setting in her home country. Michael Z. Williamson, the story he wrote, Inhale to the King Baby, when John and I were coming up, we were looking through 
all the little radio transmissions from the second book, and there's one transmission, and we both were like, Mike Williamson has to write this story. And it was a great story. (laughs) But Mike Williamson was the only one. We call him Mad Mike very affectionately. He earns the title with this story. It's a great, it is a laugh-out-loud zombie apocalypse story. Yeah, the and in then, the transmission you have the you have the king of four Cuba champs. I am the king of four Cuba champs, and it's obvious that there's somebody out there who's gotten hold of a ham radio who is totally nuts. And as it turns out, Mike wrote that story extremely well. <laughs> yeah, not only are they totally nuts, but they have access to a lot of very high quality marijuana and weapons. <laughs> <laughs> and they're a really pretty good leader in the end. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, and the last story I really want to touch on, this one was very cool, uh, I think, to both John and I. Uh, John Birmingham, a uh, very successful techno-thriller writer from Australia, uh, writes great. I mean, I've heard him referred to as the Tom Clancy of Australia. Personally, I think he writes better than Clancy, just my own opinion. Yeah, as far as I know, had never written short fiction before. He is a fan of the Black Jack series, and he reached out to John. Um, no, actually, it was the other way around. We're Facebook friends, oh. and we emailed at the time, because I got a hold of him after reading, um, oh, uh, God, I can't think of the freaking name of the, of the story right now, um, Without Warning, which is yes. a really, really fascinating book. Um, and it it's the MacGuffin is is that some sort of energy field drops and takes out the United States, and it's not precisely on the borders of the United States, but it takes out almost all of the United States except for like Seattle, and it takes northern Mexico and and most of Cuba, and everything in it is everything all the humans in it are dead, um, and it takes place right at the the height of the surge, so almost the entire U.S. military is overseas. Um, and so the only thing Americans left left behind is Alaska, uh, Seattle, uh, Hawaii, and the entire U.S. military. Um, and uh, and it's about what happens to the world if America disappears. And what really got me about that that book was I've read a lot of authors who are. They may have lived in the United States for a long time, but they are not American, who just do not get American. They, they just don't get it. Um, and he really nailed what Americans are like. You know, he's an Australian who really yes. nailed what Americans are like. So when I wrote these books, one of the things, one of the reasons that Steve Smith and Tom Smith are both Australian is, uh, and they both act way too American. Um but uh, uh, one of the reasons that I made them Australian was kind of an homage to Birmingham um, because he'd done American characters so well. So when we were doing this anthology, I reached out to John. I said, hey, do you want to do a short story? And he said, yeah, you know, I, I love that series. I'd love to do a short story. And uh, so he did this short story, which is uh, uh, The Killer Awakens. And, and it's really good. Um, yeah. The other thing about Voices of the Fall is that it's so international in scope. Um, we've got stuff set that we've got stuff set in Paris, we've got stuff set in, in Portugal, so it reaches out beyond the United States. 
But, yeah, Birmingham's story is really, really good. And, unfortunately, Birmingham is just one of those guys that, you know, everybody wants the next Birmingham book. Um, I want to fly over to Australia and grab him by the lapels and go, what happens next? Right? (laughs) Because I I, I want that character to survive, and I want that character's story um, because it's, it's such a great story. Anyway, it's... Yeah, international of an anthology. I mean, literally stories set all the way around the world and even in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And that's the whole point about this is that there are thousands of stories around the entire world and here are just a few of them. Yeah. Uh, And there's other great writers in here. Uh, Dave Dave Freer is another Australian. uh, He is now. He used to be a South African. Uh, He lives in Uh, Tasmania. Yeah. On a strange island that's uh, actually even more remote than Flinders Island, I think it's called. You want to talk about remote? Um, <laughs> you know Dave Freer at all, Dr. Monkey. Um, the place that, that he lives is like 120 miles out at sea from the nearest other oh, inhabited boy. island. <laughs> wow. <laughs> He's like, I yeah, got tired crazy. of people. Wow. <laughs> yeah. wow. He has, uh, he's written a novel set on that island um, called uh, Changelings Island that is a wonderful YA, and it's all, and you really get a sense of the isolation of the place. With the, It's a fantasy novel, um, but it's, uh, it really it partakes of that real well. Um, we've got Michael Grants. We've got Griff Barber. When we sent uh, Dave the contract for the anthology, he emailed me that he would have to drive 40 miles through the bush to the nearest postal drop just to pick it up. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, he lives on the ass end of that island, even. So he's like, rem- he's like on the outback of that island. He goes diving and, like, you know, like eats things he catches. Um, with spearfishing and ah, it's crazy. So. Well, his uh, his father was a mate on a on a fishing boat in. Uh, he actually came from a big family that was a commercial fishing family in South Africa, um, and then was a uh, medic in the Angolan War. Hated. Um, he he has pretty much the same response to military type stuff as Dave Drake. Um, and got a PhD in biology, um, worked in aquaculture, and got out of it for the same reason I did. There's no money in it. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, uh, Dave Freer is a fascinating guy, um, and it's a uh, it it his story had a lot of similarities to the Down Easter story, but that it was a much smaller group. Um, but uh, Anyway, yeah, Mike Gant is another person who was in the anthology. He's a former submariner, and there's a lot of stuff about submarines in the the first four books. And so I said, hey, Mike, can you write a story about what happens with a submarine? Um, You know, and and they have they have a you know something significant happen, and and they've got to uh, they've got to pull through that no matter what, or they're going to die. Because um, he's told me some of the stories about what they did, you know, uh, to to get through just a normal deployment, you know, where they're just, you know, 
they're just doing the normal stuff that they do, which admittedly in some cases is kind of wacky. Um, but, you know, he, he talked one time about the shaft on the submarine got bent while they were, you know, at sea in a place where they couldn't just surface and say, hey, can you come get us? And so they had to actually stick the shaft of the submarine in the oven that they normally use for cooking and crank it up as high as it could to get the metal to heat up enough to be able to bend it back straight. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, in a, in a zombie apocalypse, there's going to be nothing but disaster to these subs. You know, so, so show me a, show me a, a disaster. And it's a really, really intense, story about this subcrew that they smash into a freighter when they're trying to surface. Um, they're doing an emergency blow, and they smack a, a, an abandoned freighter on the other side, uh, cut open the hull of the freighter, get their sail stuck in the freighter, and now the freighter's sinking, and they're stuck on the, stuck on the freighter, and they've got to get loose. Um, and... Uh, it's a, it's, you know, it's a very, very technical, very, very, you know, this is how the Mariners actually work. Um, and it's got great characters in it. Um, and it's, it's just this intense, are they going to make it out? I won't say whether they do or not. The book is Voices of the Fall. The, um, it's a Black Tide Rising anthology. Um, edited by John Ringo and Gary Poole. Um, and I want to thank Gary and John, Mike Massa, um, Brenda Dubois, Robert Butner. Uh, um, and uh, it's amazing to, uh, to have you all gathered together um, to, uh, to talk about this, um, this amazing little uh, gem that is set in John Ringo's uh, Black Tide Rising uh, universe. So thank you all very much. And thank you for having me, time. Tony. My pleasure. You're welcome. 10 would podcast again. <laughs> and I, I got to get Rico again. My God. Yeah, you actually so, got me this time, man. Yeah. So, um, John is the great white that we occasionally can get. But, uh, thank you. Thank you very yeah, much. I am, for, uh, I am the white whale, happen. man. <laughs> <laughs> Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in 
rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Oof! Expensive knife. Pretty, but hardly optimized for killing. He sniffed the blade. Not poisoned. If you're an assassin, you're remarkably bad at it. Who are you, really? And don't waste my time lying. My arm is getting tired. He let a little more of the hammer's weight rest on her. She hurried and pulled down her scarf, revealing her whole face. Not that it mattered, since he didn't strike her as a library regular. Senior archivist Radamantha Nems Daharben of the Central Library. Getting hit with a hammer was certainly not how the romance story had turned out. I really do need to speak to Devadas. It's a matter of life and death. That should be obvious. The young protectors had witnessed Carno toss her down, had run over, and formed a circle around them. Though they were only armed with practice swords, they all looked more than capable of beating her to death with them. Fetch the Lord Protector. Carno ordered one of them. That boy took off at a sprint. Carno looked into the pouch, saw the expensive spectacles inside, removed them and let the pouch fall. There was something else very valuable in that pouch, but Rada managed not to audibly gasp when it struck the dirt. Carno held the glasses up to his eyes. Be careful with those. I need them to see. I know what they are. Carno frowned as the world doubtlessly turned blurry for him. Then he looked down at her. Soft, ink-stained fingertips of a scribe, the skin of someone who never sees the light of day, and a mark on the bridge of your nose where you usually wear these things. More likely an archivist than an assassin, and certainly more firster than some low-status worker, unlucky enough to be born too pretty. I believe you're telling the truth this time. Then he lifted the hammer off of her. Surprisingly, he extended one hand to help her up. She took his hand. It was hard enough to crush every delicate bone in her hand, but somehow remarkably gentle. He hoisted her right to her feet. I don't normally shove down government officials, but occasionally our order receives unwanted guests, witches, blasphemous creations, demonic hybrids, that sort of thing. You have my sincere apologies, my lady. Daksha's expensive dress was torn. She'd never hear the end of it. I can't imagine any of Devadas's many other secret female guests are greeted in such a terrible manner. Curious, Carno tilted his head to the side. What secret female guests? His affairs. What affairs? And that's what Rada got for listening to the gossip of junior librarians.
That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And Orion's Belt, Samson's Lock, and John Henry's Celestial Hammer. Plus, thanks, praise, and plot is to John Ringo, Gary Poole, Mike Massa, Brendan Dubois, and Robert Butner, editors and authors of Voices of the Fall. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. 